A Night at the Opera. It's more than a classic Marx Brothers film. It's the second career of our guest today. When illness strikes at the Met, he makes his entrance. You're listening to Reach MDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, your host. And with us today is Dr. Anthony Yan, the New York Metropolitan Opera Volunteer Medical Director. That's a mouthful. Welcome, Tony. Hello there. Well, tell us about yourself. Tell us about your job. Without being specific, you, you just don't treat singers. You, you kind of treat the whole audience, too, don't you, at times? Yes, we do. Well, my background in my practice as an otolaryngologist, and I'm one of the doctors at Metropolitan Opera who provides medical care during performances and rehearsals. And I've been there now for 25 years, and I'm not the oldest one there, so <laughs> it's a job that people tend to hang on to. We have a different doctor covering performances every night, and we basically look after the stage, the orchestra, and the audience. So I would say a lot of it is you know, primary care and, and taking care of the mishaps, but we do get to see, of course, the performances as well, and the performers when they're having problems. So that's really become a big part of my practice. Okay. How did you first get connected with the opera? Well, when I moved to New York in 1979 from Toronto, which is where I did all my training, my wife, who's a professional musician, had an old friend, also from Toronto, who's a violinist, whose husband was one of the administrators of the Met. And of course, there was a whole group of doctors in place, and I started off kind of at the bottom of the line covering my night and then as time passed and people left and uh, and retired i moved my way to the top did you have to like go on stage and audition show your physician skills and sing if they heard me sing i wouldn't be there all right <laughs> <laughs> now now deal, dealing with divas you know are, are i've met some artistically gifted singers too and, and performers are they different than you and me i mean what kind of special needs do they have and what quirks do they have that you have to contend with well yeah, I would say that most professional artists are different than you and I. They are devoted to their art. The art is very difficult. It has taken them many years to learn, and it takes you know hours a day to keep up. And they're very dependent on it. That's really their livelihood. They are also very in tune with their bodies. Singers have a much higher degree of proprioception in the facial area, in the skull area, than you and I would. A lot of the singing is not monitored by, by listening, but by proprioception and by bone conducted sound. So they are very often aware of very, very minor changes in the voice before you and I could hear it. So one of the things that I've learned treating singers is to listen to them uh, when they complain. You know, it's very easy for physicians to, to know what they know and to, to just ignore everything else. And a singer may come in and say, you know, I find when I hit a certain note, it doesn't feel right. Now, if you bring that complaint to to most physicians, they wouldn't know what to do with that. But you just have to listen to them and accept that. They're also very sensitive. They have to be. You know, they basically put their heart out every night. And, you know, I'm sure that you and I are fine physicians, but we're not auditioning with every patient. They are auditioning with every performance. There's always somebody listening, and in each performance, in a way, is responsible for furthering their career. So you, you just have to love them. Well, you weren't trained, I'm sure, in your residency about when a singer comes in and says, when I hit high C, something doesn't feel right in my sinus. Where do you pick up that training? Along the way? Or, or is there some special training that you've had for this? Well, I think... No, there's no special training. I, I think the first thing is that you need to have an interest in this. And my interest came from music. I started off life as a pianist, and I've been around musicians most of my life. And this is something that's always attracted me. The two things that led me to the specialty of ENT were hearing, which is the ear, and the voice. So this has always been kind of, you know, on the back burner for me. I have worked with a couple of wonderful 
professional voice laryngologists uh, over the years. One was Dr. Wilbur Gould, who was a very well-known specialist in New York, and the other one was Dr. Eugene Grabscheid, also in New York. And so I spent a lot of time in their office taking care of singers and uh, just learning to work with them. And then when I started to attend the opera, I had a chance to really learn the repertoire and the different roles, and, and the whole thing just kind of came together. And if you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Anthony Yan, an ENT surgeon in New York, who is also the medical director of the Metropolitan Opera. All right, well, is there a difference in the medical needs between those artists who sing opera as compared to those who are in musical theater? Uh, yes, there is. This has been described years ago by someone, I don't remember who it was, and the comparison was that opera singers are the high jumpers or the sprinters, and musical theater singers are the marathon runners. To perform in musical theater is much more tiring. These people often have to sing eight shows a week, and depending on what the venue is, there may not be a cover, so they have to go on. They are the show, and it's just a very, very tiring and wearing way of singing. The technique, of course, is also quite different. In musical theater, there's a technique called belting, and I don't know if you know a lot about singing, but typically you can sing in two different voices, sometimes three, the chest voice, which is the lower notes, and the head voice, which is the higher notes. Some people also sing in falsetto on the very top. Yeah, that's what we do around the studio here. We just sing in falsetto all day long. I'm sure you do all the Beach Boy hits. Right. Uh, But with belting, what is done is the chest voice is pushed up into the head voice range. So it's, it's an unnatural, stressful way of singing, and this is what musical theater demands. So, so that these people tend to have problems, they have chronic problems, and they can't take a week or two off. Right. Well, I've always wondered how singers or performers feel about surgery, how scared they must be. And I, I heard a rumor once that Enrico Caruso had his tonsils out nine times. I don't know if this is true. So they grew back and each time his voice got better. But what extra steps do you have to do to protect the egos and the voices of these performers if you have to do surgery on them? Yeah, there are several things. One is that, of course, nobody normally wants to have surgery unless you have, you know, Munchausen's disease. And, and singers definitely don't want surgery. It means time off work. It means uh, often a a financial handicap because their insurance is not always so good. And most importantly, any surgery around the upper airway, there's always a big concern that it's going to change the voice. So I think there is room for surgery in singers, but it needs to be very judicious and very clearly indicated. And my practice is to eliminate every other possible way of treating things prior to recommending surgery. Now, there's another aspect to surgery for singers, which is anesthesia and intubation. And if a singer has to have her gallbladder out, then there's a big concern about, about being put to sleep and having a, a tube put down between the vocal folds and the possible damage from that. So I, I usually recommend to those patients, if possible, to have the intubation on expertly rather than by somebody's training. I recommend that the smallest tube be used, which in a woman would be about a size 5. I suggest to the anesthesiologist that they extubate the patient deep so they don't start phonating on the tube. And if possible, I recommend the use of a laryngeal mask, which, which avoids the, the need to put the tube between the cords. Okay. How about steroid usage in, in vocal performers? Are steroids used a lot? I, we've heard about that. Yeah, I think steroids are actually overused. I'm not sure about the other uh, specialties, but in treatment of professional singers, you know, steroids are the, uh, you know, the refuge of the scoundrel. If you don't know what's going on, and somebody's horse, you give them some steroids, it can't hurt, but, but actually it can hurt because of several reasons. First of all, you can abuse steroids and get 
the usual side effects from it, but also it, it does decrease edema on the vocal folds, and it gives singers a false sense of security. And so one of the defense mechanisms, which is a sensation of discomfort or pain, is taken away. So they will often oversing and cause more damage. The other problem I see, uh, certainly with the international singers that we see, is that they travel all over the world and, and they get shots. And somebody may come and see me, and uh, last week they were maybe in London, and they were hoarse, and they got a shot, and they don't know what was in the shot. It was probably some kind of cortisone. The week before, they were in Munich, and they're walking around with, with all these drugs, different forms of steroids in their body. So, you know, I, I think it's a very dangerous thing. I do use steroids. I use steroids in singers who have a very important performance that cannot be canceled. I will often tell singers if a performance or a, or a rehearsal can be canceled, they need to prioritize what is you know, career-making versus less important. The other thing I tell uh, singers is to know what they're being given because there's a sense of trust. You walk into a doctor's office, he gives you something, take this, and you don't know what you're getting. So I always ask them to keep track of what they're being given. That's not just singers. That's all of my patients, too. Well, it's absolutely true. It's it's absolutely true. And and, and I think with singers, there's there's a very special relationship that singers have. They they need to be taken care of. They need to trust you, and they almost don't want to know because, in a sense, there's more of a placebo effect if you don't know what you're getting. But I always tell them to find out what it is. Now, the last thing with, with steroids is it's very dangerous, in my opinion, to give steroids to musical theater people for the reasons that we discussed before, which is that they need to keep performing and they're going to really not have time to recover. You know, they keep singing on these cortisone up vocal folds and eventually they're going to get some permanent damage. Let me ask you an, an off-the-wall question. I, performers of, of very high calibers move in pretty artistic circles around the world, and they meet lots of interesting artistic people who aren't singers. How, how exposed are these people to alternative medicine, and, and how much you, do you deal with the theater superstition and, and kind of out their ideas that are picked up by these people? I think your question is two parts. The, the first part is with alternative medicine, which I'll get back to. The other part is superstition. I have no problem with singers belief systems as long as it's not harmful. <clears throat> there was a tradition for Pavarotti that before he would go on stage, he would look around backstage to find a bent nail on the floor. And so if he found a bent nail, this would signal that his performance would be good. So all over the world, stagehands would scatter bent nails backstage so he would find one. That's, that's harmless. <laughs> there are some injections with, like vitamin B12, which are, are harmless, Sometimes they're helpful, and there's a big placebo effect. And I'm a big believer in placebo. And the, the problem with placebo historically was when you were doing a scientific study where you're trying to isolate one parameter that you're studying for, you didn't want the placebo effect confounding your results. When you're treating patients, you know, where the, where the tire meets the road, whatever you can use to make that patient feel better is good. And placebo is nothing else than the mind-body connection, as far as I'm concerned, and it has a name and a place, and the place of the hypothalamus. If I can convince a patient that what I'm doing is helping him, it'll help him more. So that's, that's the part on, on belief systems. Now, as far as alternative medicine, singers love alternative medicine, and there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, they don't normally like traditional doctors and, and surgery and expensive drugs. And also, much of what I see with singers in terms of disorders, are really disorders of function and not disorders of structure. You know, it, in a, on a certain level, what I practice is, is occupational medicine. A lot of the problems singers have relate to how they sing, 
where they sing, but these are really problems of physiology rather than anatomy. And alternative medicine, especially acupuncture, Chinese medicine, addresses problems of function, in my opinion, much better than traditional Western medicine. So I'm a believer in it. I'm a practicing acupuncturist. I use acupuncture daily in my practice, and, and it's a very useful adjunct to, to medicine and surgery. All right, Tony, thanks for being our guest today and speaking with us about your second career as the volunteer medical director of the Metropolitan Opera. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMDXM is here for you, the health professionals who care for your patients. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, where our newly redecorated website with its on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library, including this show. Register on the website and enter promo code RADIO for six months of free podcasts. And we thank you for listening.